as we were driven back to safety, all I was thinking of how we could reduce this violence. I had lost everything that I have worked for for over 20 years. But that night, as I went to sleep, I told myself that, look, I will not be angry. And by the time I woke up in the morning the following day, I had decided that I was going to be part of the resolution of that crisis instead of being angry. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator's Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today is a mediator from Nigeria who took great personal risk to bring peace to the community in which he lives. He's experienced outbreaks of violence firsthand, but has also seen incredible compassion. And these life-changing moments motivated him as a businessman in the city of Jos to join local mediation efforts himself. Alhaji Ibrahim Saleh Hassan, welcome to the Mediator's Studio. Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's wonderful to have you with us. I need to set the scene a little. Your home city of Jos in Nigeria's Middle Belt is the historic meeting point of the Muslim North and the Christian South. And it's made up of diverse ethnic groups, many divided along religious lines, whose disputes over land, resources and political power have led to episodes of violence. The first major outbreak takes place in September 2001, where a thousand people are killed and violence engulfs your own community, Ibrahim. Take us back to that time. What happened? Well, in 2001, there was an an argument between a girl who was crossing the road on a Friday and there was a Friday prayer congregation in place. And uh, suddenly from nowhere, that resulted in some big scuffle in the neighborhood. And by the evening of that same Friday, the problem had engulfed the whole of Joss. I lived in an area where there were more Christians than Muslims. So what happens in 2001 was that if you were in an area where you had more of your own people, you were safe. But if you are caught up on the other side of the divide, then you became a target. But luckily in 2001, our neighbors saved us. There was no major damage to our home. But for fear of being attacked later in the night, we were relocated to the house of my neighbor where we stayed overnight. And the following morning, I had to leave the area where my extended family lived. After about a week, the neighbors called a meeting and asked us to come back because they could guarantee our safety. And they put up some sort of a neighborhood watch to ensure that everybody was safe. That was how we came back home in 2001. And your neighbors, Ibrahim, they were Christian, as I understand it, and you you coming from a Muslim family. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but, but then we were good neighbors. I think uh, we were like family. My kids were always friends with their own children, and we had no issues. What happened was that the crisis in 2001, unfortunately, polarized the city of Jos where we divided the city into compartments where people felt safer in locations where they were more of their own. So that situation was, I think, partly responsible for the crisis of 2008. Because by the time we came to the local government elections in 2008, the town was completely divided along religious lines. It so happened that the party in power the PDP at the time, was headed by a governor who was an indigenous Christian. 
and who saw the threat in the larger Muslim population in Jos and thought he could exclude them from electing the chairman. So what they did was to move the coalition center for that election halfway through the day. And the mostly Muslim houses felt this was a move to disenfranchise them or to give benefit or advantage to the Christian candidates. Before you knew it, the whole town had been engulfed into serious crisis. And one would have thought that we would have learned our lessons from 2001, but no. Actually, 2001 now became a model for what was to happen in 2008. And so you have this disputed election, you have suspicions around whether it's free and fair. How did that violence then escalate? Well, because it was religious, the first thing you have is that there was burning of places of worship. Churches were burnt where Muslims uh, had numbers and mosques were burnt where they were located in areas where Christians became more, even schools. And then people were chased. Christians were chased down in areas where Muslims were more and Muslims were chased where Christians were more. And unfortunately, I lived in an area where there were more Christians than Muslims. And uh, for that reason, (laughs) I was then definitely a target. Once again, our neighbors came to our rescue because the violence went on overnight. And by the following morning, I did not even know the situation that was happening in the city center. And I had gone out for a walk in the neighborhood And uh, most of the neighbors in the area said, no, 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 Ibrahim, go back home. We don't think it's safe enough for you to walk today because there's a lot of serious tension in town and we think you are better at home. And by the time I got back home, my family was parking because our neighbor had asked them to park and leave because our house was not safe, was being targeted, and a mob was coming that way and they didn't know what was going to happen. So we moved out of the house, went into, again, our neighbor's house, for the second time. And the unfortunate incident of that day led to the death of uh, the relation of my houseboy who had come to fight for our property not to be touched. He was beaten and left for dead. We learned later in the day that uh, he was taken to the hospital. But unfortunately, we lost him by the following day. That, to me, was the saddest aspect of that fateful day of 2008. That must have been deeply traumatic for you. How did you feel in the aftermath, seeing the violence affect the communities around you, but also people in your own household? I had two problems. My one, my family had witnessed all this violence because three of uh, my kids were at home, aged between 10 and 2. They watched this and uh, we were taken out of the compound commando style because they had to bring a military van to evacuate us from my neighbor's house. And they were shooting at us, actually, as we were being driven out of the property. So this was quite scary. We got over the initial scare. and uh, But something happened to me that day, which I still remember to date. I wasn't angry. And as we were driven back to safety, all I was thinking of how we could reduce this violence. What are we going to do? What is it that we have not done as elite stakeholders to reduce the tension that will result to such level of violence? So when I got back to the community, there was a lot of noise about what has happened or what was happening. 
and I had lost everything that I have worked for for over 20 years because I had lived in that neighborhood for exactly 25 years at the time. That was where I started my life, my first marriage. I started my business when I was there. So everything that I have done over the last 20, 25 years had gone. So you have this feeling of numbness first, not knowing what is going to happen, and then the feeling that, okay, what am I going to be doing tomorrow? You have to start all over again, and then you have your family, you have other people to take care of. But that night, as I went to sleep, I told myself that, look, I will not be angry. And I, for the first time, remembered that God can put you in situations to test you. Because as a Muslim, I've been told that God will test you in ways that you don't understand. And my resolve was to win this test or to pass this test by being calm. And by the time I woke up in the morning the following day, I had decided that I was going to be part of the resolution of that crisis instead of being angry because I knew that a lot of things went wrong. It's quite striking, Ibrahim, that you know your own children having witnessed that kind of violence, that your instinct, you resisted the temptation towards revenge and, and you decided you would work for the cause of peace. Give us a sense of what you did from then on. After Five days, I decided to drive down to the area to see what had become of my house and the neighborhood. And that was, I think, the turning point in my life. I drove there, the house that I had built just less than two years, you know, was completely burnt to ashes. And the neighbors were looking at me without, with this feeling that we didn't do enough to save this person. But then something happened as we were driving out of the community because on the fateful day of the crisis i saw the guy that led the mob to burn my house i actually saw him and i saw him walking down the street five or six days after the event and i stopped the car and i stopped him i said look are you not the guy that i saw on that morning of the crisis he said yes 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 you know but I didn't go there to burn your house. We went there to stop them, which is not true because he actually came to look at the place to ensure that there was no security personnel or anything. And then he brought in the mob. But I told him something. I said, look, I forgive you for one thing because he had seen when I was moving my family into the neighbor's compound. If he had told them that, look, they are inside that compound, we would be talking of a different thing today entirely because definitely they would have attacked that house. So what I told him is, I'm going to forgive you for saving our lives because if you had told them I was in that house, they would have attacked us. But I want you to know that I know you, I have seen you, but I'm not going to do anything. You know, so seeing that guy and feeling the way I felt, that was when I now realized that the best thing to do is to take care of that situation. Tell us more about how you got involved. Uh, it actually started after the crisis because a lot of community meetings were held. Government came into it. A lot of people wanted to come into religious leaders. Traditional leaders were calling meetings. And because I was one of the victims, I started attending these meetings because they wanted uh, people to tell their stories of what happened during the crisis. So I was uh, very much involved in some of these meetings. And some of the things that I heard from other people, you know, I was attacked because I was a Muslim in an area more dominated by Christians. But so many Christians were attacked also in areas where Muslims were dominant. So empathy now came in 
I started feeling the pains of the others as well. I realized that this thing had touched people beyond their belief because when you are burnt out of your property, you are burnt, your business is burnt because I lost my house, I lost my business, my car business, and 30 something vehicles were burnt in that crisis. So for me, this now became an issue. And then by the end of 2012, you get involved in the work of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, or HD, the organization that you and I both now work for. Tell me about the work you did there. One thing about the uniqueness of the HD process at the time we learned was that it was community-driven and it was bottom-up. Usually in Nigeria, you would have the government set up a committee to examine crises and come out with uh, recommendations. But this time, is the other way around. Communities were supposed to dialogue and prefer recommendations for their issues. We were very skeptical at the beginning because there was so much suspicion in just, you know, who, why this group, what advantage would they give to us or what would the other feel? So we gave them a chance. And I was nominated as one of the delegates to the dialogue from the Hausa community. And that was uh, the beginning of my involvement with actual mediation and peace process. Part of the dialogue was to build the capacity of the participants in dialogue. We had conflict analysis training, and they were taught to understand that in dialogue, you don't come out winning. You lose some, you win some. We started as adversaries. There were five groups, the Hausa, the Biram, the Anaguta, the Afizere, and the Fulanis when we first started. Then eventually we brought in the Igbos because we had plenty of them in Jaws. We brought in the Yorubas and we brought in people from the South-South communities living in Jaws. So eventually we had a dialogue process of eight major groups and we started mediating on a very, very difficult note because there was so much suspicion. So we came into this dialogue with this divide, ethnic divide and religious divides. It was difficult at the beginning, but eventually I think common sense prevailed and they were able to have some discussions and uh, it worked. So you're taking part in that dialogue process. You're there as a kind of representative of the Hauser community that you're coming from. Were you worried about how people would perceive you? I mean, you spoke about the suspicion. You know, was it difficult for you to take on that role? Very difficult, Adam, I will tell you. Because number one, I had a personal baggage I was carrying. My family is a political family. My father had been part of the controversy of Joss for 40 years, being a public figure because he had been a politician. And he had always this very strong belief that there's no way anybody would say the houses are not indigenous of Joss because this is true. His father and people like his father built Joss. And he will not understand that somebody will come to him and tell him 100 years after that he was not an indigenous of the place that his father set up. But then here I was now more forward thinking. And I told my dad that I can't go with the kind of rhetoric he had for 40 years. I want to sit down and negotiate with these guys. Let me negotiate the existence of myself, my own children, and my grandchildren here. Because if I go with the narrative that you have, these people have the government and they have a way that they can remove us from here. Because I, have, I was a victim myself, probably I was looking at the crisis differently. So I had to take his permission 
to throw a different line entirely from his and to have a different set of arguments completely different from those that he had before me. So this was part of the difficulty. The second difficulty was that of trust. There's no way the people from the other communities would look at Ibrahim, who is the son of Saleh Hassan, and would ever believe that Ibrahim would be objective to the point where you can sit down and negotiate. Because my father's image was large in the horizon, and they thought I was representing my father's lines of thinking. But then I told myself that I'll get the confidence of these people as we go along, and then probably the dialogue would be a better thing. And then the methodology of the dialogue made it easy for us to come into the dialogue because from the choice of issues, from the way the dialogues were set up, how we even sat in the room, and then the kind of people that were brought into the table because we realized that they had done a lot of a very good stakeholder mapping and they had brought people to the room that would listen, that would not fight each other, that in some cases were even friends. And we tried to develop this friendship to a higher level amongst us, the dialogue uh, team. So this friendship, I think, was what kept us going even when we had difficult issues to discuss. And so you're engaged in this dialogue process in your hometown in Jos. You make progress uh, and you, you try to do this kind of work in other parts of Nigeria's middle belt because obviously the violence that you saw was, was not limited to Jos. It took place in many parts of that region in Nigeria. So tell us about that transition from moving from your own hometown to nearby communities. After 18 months and 49 issues discussed, we came to some sort of an agreement. And we had a very big ceremony where all stakeholders came and we signed some sort of a ceasefire peace agreement between the eight ethnic communities in Jos. But we realized also that at the time that we had finished our own dialogue, the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue had been invited to Kaduna because the governor of Kaduna had heard about what we were doing in Jos in terms of the dialogue, and he wanted that replicated in southern Kaduna. Five local government areas were in serious trouble in southern Kaduna, and their issues were similar issues about land, issues about indigeneity, issues about uh, who owns what part of what city, you know, the issues were similar. And our case in Jos was so similar to that of Southern Kaduna that they kept inviting us to Southern Kaduna to share experience. And I would travel with uh, my colleague, Dr. Sam Godongs, who is a Christian and an indigenous uh, Birom, and we'll tell them how in just we have been able to suspend our, our issues of uh, conflict so that there will be peace, even though we have not solved all the issues. And while the dialogue sessions and the mediation processes in Southern Kaduna was going on, Plateau State also invited again the center back to Plateau, to Southern Plateau this time. And in Southern Plateau, you wouldn't believe they were mediating between 56 ethnic communities from six local government areas. Unbelievable. And the issues were also similar. Indigeneity, land, farmer harder, cultism, armed robbery, you know, any conflict between two communities can engulf the whole region in violence. So that's how we kept going on and on and on and on and on. And uh, till date, 
I've not been able to pull out of the piecework. I'm sure that you made progress in those different parts of the middle belt and showing them the example of what you had done in Joss and, and trying to get them to adapt this model for their own communities, which have their own ethnic makeup. Tell me about a day that it went wrong when, despite your best efforts, things didn't work out. It, 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 it happens a lot, Adam. It's not just a one-off thing. One of the saddest things you can experience in crisis is when you go to communities today and you talk about uh, how they can solve problems, you leave and the following day somebody calls you and said, there's an attack, somebody has been killed. It saddens you initially. You have this burden that these people might think you are lying about what you are telling them. The dialogue works. But then you keep moving on. You keep going back to them. Sometimes they even accuse you directly. You have told us that by now we'll not see violence, but why are we seeing violence? So what I always tell people is that try to develop interpersonal relations with the people that you dialogue with or you bring into mediation. Because when you have that personal relationship, they can trust you to even tell you when they think you are lying to them. But then you see behind the screens, behind all the doubts, you can see that the people still have hope in what you are telling them. And they have hope that one day dialogue would work. There's something that we call sustained dialogue. And why we do sustained dialogue is we keep talking about those issues that will not go away. And those issues that can never be resolved simply by just talking. And we keep talking about it. So we keep going back to them. We keep talking about the same issues. Even when we are not with them, we keep phoning them up, getting in touch with them, ask them if they discuss these issues that are protracted, that are difficult. And they tell you, yes, they are. There's no short answer to that question. You just keep trying. It never ends. And another challenge, of course, in all peacemaking is making sure that all voices are included and you engage women's groups. What did that conversation look like? Well, you know, because of the culture and configuration of the middle belt, Culturally, women are not supposed to be part of dialogue, especially on issues of conflict. For instance, I will to interest you to know that in the Middle Belt, women are not even part of the traditional rulership institutions. Women are not supposed to be part of any decision making. These were issues. And then here we were having a dialogue and talking about issues that affect women directly, because we know that women are the biggest victims of any violent conflict. They lose husbands, they lose their livelihoods, they lose their children. And uh, women are small-time farmers and traders in the Middle Belt. And they lose their positions, they lose their means of livelihood. So what we agreed then was to allow the women speak for themselves, just like the communities for the first time are sitting down to discuss issues of conflict our thought was that women should also be given a safe space where they will talk openly, freely, without the men looking down their necks. And then there were also issues, for instance, rape and generally gender-based violence. The women will not feel free to discuss in the presence of men. And the dialogue set up a women's steering committee even. And they came out with their own women declaration, which they brought to plenary and we married with the main dialogue. It brought women to the fore of the discussions. Until date, women have found a strong voice 
to talk about their issues. This does not remove them from the main dialogue sessions because in all the main dialogue sessions that we usually take uh, membership from development associations, traditional rulership groups, religious leaders, and then we draft women uh, leaders and youth leaders. So they are both in the main dialogue, but then we give them this space where they go outside of uh, the main dialogue to discuss about purely women issues. And they are, I think they are quite happy and we're making progress with that. So this dialogue process eventually leads to peace declarations, three of them, in fact, between 2014 and 2016, in different parts of the Middle Belt in Nigeria. How do you make sure that they didn't live just on paper, but actually translated into practice as well? All these agreements were fashioned in such a way that recommendations were fashioned out and targeted at six groups. There was recommendations to the federal government, the state government, the local governments. Then we had recommendations to the communities and we had recommendations to the traditional institutions and then religious leaders. And what we have done is that we have had some relative success with the communities because we have inculcated this culture of dialogue and communities have agreed to continue to involve people in dialogue to discuss issues. There's some success there. And with the traditional institutions, we have had some successes also. We have had uh, successes with the state government. And then, of course, we as communities still go around the communities and do what we call sustained dialogue. I've told you how we believe that sustained dialogue is when you continually talk about those issues that are really burning and will not go away. So we keep going to them. We keep going back to the communities to discuss these things. This is a really important point, Ibrahim, because it speaks to the difference between peace as an agreement and peace as a process which goes on for some time. And I'd like to ask you, you do you think there's been a fundamental change in the relationship between communities? Or are these tensions still very much present? Well, there's a change. Issues are still there. But rather than resort to violence, people now talk about these issues. For Southern Plateau, we had a very, very good example of a very good mediation process. It was 56 ethnic communities. And for 12 months after the signing of that agreement, there wasn't a single issue of conflict that was breached in 12 months. That was a milestone for us because we know that majority of agreements all over the world about peace don't last that long. So we even did a ceremony to celebrate one year of continuous adherence to the agreements reached in Southern Plateau. The governor came, all the major stakeholders came. So we kept reminding them of what beautiful things they can achieve once they agree. And the test of this change was when we had elections in 2019. Usually elections are always a trigger for conflict in the Middle Belt. But for the first time in 2019, there were elections and there was no violence. There was local government elections and then the governorship and presidential elections in southern Kaduna, there was no violence. Just last week, we had by-elections for senatorial elections in Plateau and there was no violence. So for us, I think these are testimonies to attest to at least that change to some extent. But the issues are still there and uh, some of these tensions once in a while, you know, show. 
I think it's very important the point that you make because on the one hand we can measure success by what you say that these peace declarations have prevented violence from from taking place and that there's been peace on the ground but I'm curious what you think success in the long term looks like in your work is the ultimate goal that this kind of dialogue work won't actually be needed anymore because the issues between different communities have been resolved or is that wishful thinking perhaps <laughs> adam this 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 issues will never go away i mean when you have 250 different tribes uh, who all believe differently and have different aspirations and then you have bad governance you have politics and politicians would use some of these fault lines for political gains. I believe they will still be there. Elites will continue to use them to to get advantage of each other. But what I believe should happen is that places like the Middle West should never be left alone in terms of dialogue and peace work because they have the high tendency for relapse. Why I say so is because if you look at the issues of environment in Nigeria, the far north of Nigeria we have desertification, very, very few areas where you have continuous rain and green grass for pasture. And the Middle Belt seems to be the only place that people can move. So whether we like it or not in the Middle Belt, people will continue to come in. More uh, herders will continue to come in because the environment is pushing them in here. And looking ahead to the future, you know, for your sons, for example, who had to witness that awful violence in 2008, what do you hope that they will grow up into in, in the Middle Belt? Hmm. Difficult to say. Difficult to say. Our children are growing in schools where they only know their fellow Muslims or fellow Christians. After the crisis, I made it a deliberate, uh, for reasons that I know would be worthwhile, to send my children to what I call a Christian school. Because I believe that they deserve a little bit of what I had growing up. But we don't see that now. Everybody is in his own shell. People are going to single narrative schools. So my hope is that globalization, education, social media, proper education, and then if we are lucky, governance becomes better. Probably we'll begin to change some of these situations. But as long as you have scarce resources, Ada, these fault lines will continue to be a source of problems in the Middle Belt and elsewhere in Nigeria. So do you think that they'll follow in their father's footsteps and be facilitating dialogue in the future? I don't, I, I don't, I don't believe that will be best for them because it has its sacrifices, Adam. I, 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 I want my children to be as free as they would want to. But uh, if they choose this, it's a very, very noble way to live, I think, because in all religions they say God loves the peacemakers. So if they choose, fine, I will, I, will, I will encourage them, but it's not easy. It's not easy. Thank you, Ibrahim, for everything that you've done and Thank continue you. to Thank do. You. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. It was such a pleasure sharing my experiences with you. That was Alhaji Ibrahim Saleh Hassan in the Mediator Studio, an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If you've been touched by Ibrahim's story and like what you've heard, Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please do recommend it to a friend. You can find other episodes at osloforum.org where you can read more about the forum itself. And you can continue the conversation with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. 
That's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.